Well, if you have your Bibles with you again this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the Old Testament book of Psalms, Psalm 9. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 572. If you're a guest with us, we've been spending the summer working through uh, the beginning of the book of Psalms, and we've come to Psalm 9 this morning. Guys running the screen, I'm just going to read uh, verses 9 to 12, uh, just for time's sake and introduction this morning. Psalm 9, and I'm going to speak for a few minutes today on this subject, sing and preach on. Psalm 9, beginning in verse 9, and this is what the Word of God says. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord, who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. According to the title, Psalm 9 is addressed to the choir master, directing him to lead in the singing of this psalm to the Muth Leben. Muth Leben is a difficult phrase to translate, and most scholars agree that the simplistic translation of this phrase is concerning the death of a son. Regarding its authorship, Psalm 9 is a psalm of David. It was probably joined originally with Psalm 10 to form one hymn of praise. Psalm 9 is an acrostic psalm built on the first 11 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And these alphabetical lines build on one another as David pours out his praise to the God who judges justly. Psalm 9 was written in the midst of a crisis. David's enemies hate him and have pushed him to the gates of death. And yet in the midst of his trouble, David praises God as the Lord Most High, the sovereign God of the universe who is never surprised, never perplexed, never groping for solutions to the upheaval and strife in the world. He reigns, and one day all that is done in this stormy world will be brought into the light of his eternal judgment. David composed Psalm 9 to praise God for his wonderful deeds and just judgment of the wicked. This psalm, as you read through it, has a prophetic ring to it, as God, the righteous judge, justly judges the nations. And no matter how much evil may reign in our world, a final day of reckoning is coming. And Psalm 9 is a dramatic announcement of that fact. You will notice in this psalm that at the beginning and the middle of the psalm, David praises the Lord. It is striking that in each of these sections, the psalmist combines both singing with preaching. 
And as you think about that in Psalm 9 and as you think about church history in general, it is interesting to note that great periods of church history have always been marked with a revival of singing and a revival of preaching. At the time of the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther's hymns were on the lips of the German people as much as his words were in their hearts. And at the time of the Wesleyan revival in Great Britain, the recovery of the gospel and of preaching was accompanied by equally stirring recovery of gospel singing through the hymns of John and Charles Wesley, Augustus Toplady, William Cowper, John Newton, and others. That's why Charles Spurgeon, when he was reflecting on Psalm 9, notes this connection between singing and preaching, and he concludes his notes with these words. So sing on, brethren, and preach on, and these shall both be a token that the Lord still dwells in Zion. Sing on and preach on, because God is in Zion. And so, in this psalm, David lifts his eyes, and he lifts our eyes beyond the problems and pain of this life to the final judgment of the wicked, as well as the unending joy that awaits every believer in the life to come. And because God has demonstrated that he is a righteous judge of the nations, we can trust him now for protection from the deteriorating world around us, and we can pray with confidence for final deliverance in the judgment to come. And while we wait for that day, David teaches us in Psalm 9 how to praise the Lord. So you and I can sing on and preach on. So notice with me, first of all, in verses 1 and 2, that David praises God for his wonderful works. He writes, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. In verses 1 and 2, David sets the tone for the entire psalm, announcing his intent to publicly praise the Lord. And with gratitude and worship, David declares, you'll note, four times that he will praise God for his greatness. And if you look carefully in verses 1 and 2, you will see that David says he will, with confidence, give thanks to the Lord. He will recount all of God's wonderful deeds. He will be glad and exult in God, and he will sing praise to God's name. And you'll notice in verses 1 and 2 that there is a progression. There is increased intensity in David's words in these verses. He moves from giving thanks to remembering God's work, to being glad in God and exalting God, and finally to rejoicing in God with the sound of his voice and the praise of his lips. And David says that he is going to give gratitude and worship to God, you'll notice, with his whole heart. His entire being overflows with thanksgiving and worship. 
It means that his mind is engaged. He knows what God has done for him. His face is full of joy as he sings praises to God. Tears well up in his eyes as his heart and soul express love and devotion to the Lord. He raises his hands in worship as he exalts in God and gives honor to his name. Oh, dear friends, in verses 1 and 2, David is not going through the motions. David didn't come to worship God to check something off of his list. David is fully engaged. His praise and worship is sincere. He is giving God the very best that he has to give him in worship. That's why one commentator said the key to the proper praying of the Psalms is the purity of our heart. Psalmody involves prayer from one central core, a heart characterized by holiness, living with an undivided heart. And so with a full and overflowing and undivided heart, David gives thanks and praise to God who is the Lord Most High. You'll remember that name for God. We looked at it just recently in a previous psalm. It's the name El Elyon, a name that reveals God to be exalted over all things. A God who is reigning in sovereignty, a God who is enthroned in the heavens, a God who is working wonders. And David says, this is a great God, and this great God has done great and wonderful deeds, and we should praise him and thank him for it. And that phrase, wonderful deeds, when you study the Psalms, it's everywhere. It's used in Psalm 106, verses 7 and 8, for God's great redemptive miracles. And in Psalm 106, verses 7 and 8, the psalmist reminds the people of God to give thanks to God and praise God for the miracle of the parting of the Red Sea and the deliverance of God's people from Pharaoh and his army. And we can glean from those verses that throughout the history of redemption, God has worked miracle after miracle after miracle on behalf of his people, bringing them salvation and rescue and times of deliverance just when they needed it most. And David says that we should pause and give thanks and praise to God for all of the wonderful deeds he's done in rescuing us and delivering us and defeating the enemies. It's also used in the Psalms in the daily experiences of life. And David teaches us through the Psalms that we can look through the daily mundane experiences of our life and look back and see God's hand and God's wonderful working of deeds and miracles and blessings and goodness and grace in our lives. And he says in Psalm 71 verses 17 and 18, O God, from my youth... You have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, O oh God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. And so from generation to generation to generation, God has always had a remnant of people. And God has always poured out his favor and his blessing and his deliverance and his rescue upon them. And so that every generation can give a legacy and a history of how God has been faithful to them. And David says, we praise and worship God for that. And I'm telling you this morning, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ... 
you are here today because God's hand is still upon you and you can look back in your life and you can see the grace of his wonderful deeds over and over and over again if you'll just look. But the Psalms aren't finished. You know, the Psalms use this phrase, wonderful deeds, to describe the glories of the Bible. Listen to Psalm 119, verse 18. David cries out, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things, wonderful deeds, out of your law, God. You know how David summarized the wonderful deeds of God in the Psalms? Psalm 40 and verse 5. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wonderful deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. That's it. Why is David caught up in thanksgiving and praise in verses 1 and 2? Because he is thinking and meditating on the greatness of the God that he is worshiping. And he's thinking about the wonderful deeds that God has done on behalf of him in his life. And they're too numerous to count. And so he just overflows with praise and worship and gratitude. And listen, friends, in the midst of his crisis... David is choosing to rest and celebrate in the goodness and the greatness and the faithfulness of God. And I want you to notice carefully in verses 1 and 2. God hasn't given him the victory yet. He's still waiting for it. And even in the midst of waiting for God to act on his life, he stands up with a full and overflowing heart thinking about how grateful and faithful God has been in the past. And because he's been faithful in the past, he's going to be faithful in the present and faithful in the future. So he stands up and he blesses the Lord and he gives thanks to his name. There are times in our lives when, like David, we have to wait for the faithfulness of God to come into our present situation to guide us and deliver us and to save us. And it's in those times that the hardest thing for us to do is to wait and rest in God's promises. But I want to remind you this morning that it is also true in these hard times that that's when we really come to know God. And David, in the midst of a crisis, surrounded by enemies, worshiped while he waited and trusted. Do you? Do you worship and rest and trust while you wait? He is a God who does wonderful deeds. David not only praises God for his wonderful works, in verses 3 through 6, David praises God for his righteous judgment. And in verses 7 and 8, he does it again. In verses 3 through 6, we see the defeat of David's enemies. He says, When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne, giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. 
Now, I have to tell you something that's happening in the language of the text, beginning in verse number three. David uses language that is past tense, and it's referred to as prophetic perfects. It's a feature of the Old Testament where this language describes coming events as if they've already happened and already taken place. They're described as being so certain that their fulfillment and the vision of them is perfectly clear and they're going to come to pass. And so the Bible describes them as already having taken place. And in verses 3 through 6, David describes the defeat of his enemies at the righteous hand of God. And there's two themes that run parallel in verses 3 through 6. David's enemies and the Lord's throne. And you'll notice that David teaches us what emanates from God's throne. In verse 3, he says that God will cause the enemies to turn back, to stumble, and to perish. And in verse 4, he says that God will maintain justice. Now listen to me, friends. I'm just saying this as a side note this morning. I talked myself out of it, but as I was sitting here in worship, I thought it needed to be said, and so I'm going to say it, and I've talked myself back into it. God is always on the side of justice. God is always in the right. And I'm going to say something that some of you may not like. But I'm going to challenge you this morning to check and see if what I'm saying to you is not true. It blows my mind in 2022 that people who call themselves Christians cannot understand what side God is on in the abortion debate and what, God, what side God is on in the homosexuality, transgender, human dignity debate. It absolutely blows my mind. Because God's word is absolutely clear where he stands on those issues. There is no gray. And I'm saying to you this morning, out of love and out of warning and out of shepherding, that if you don't land on the right side of those issues, you are going to be in opposition to God. Because God is not confused about those things. He has spoken clearly and definitively, and whether you like it or not, what He says about those issues is the metric for judgment at the end of time. Number three, look in verse four. God will give righteous judgment. In verse 5, God will rebuke the nations. He will confront them and reprove them. In verse 5, God makes the wicked perish. It refers to their total defeat. In verse 5, God blotted out the wicked's name forever and ever. It means that he destroys peoples and places and nations completely, never to be remembered. In verse 6, God defeats the enemy and leaves them in everlasting ruins. In verse 6, God uproots their cities. They're so demolished by God that they could never be rebuilt. And in verse 6, God makes the memory of the wicked perish forever. Now notice in the language of verses 3 through 6, this judgment from God is swift and it is certain. 
It means that when God intervenes in a matter, there is no force in heaven or on earth that can defeat him. His enemies are completely and utterly defeated and devastated forever. I want you to notice also in verses 3 through 6, the eternal language that David uses. Just listen to it. Perish, judgment, blotted, forever and ever, and everlasting ruins. Friends, Psalm 9 is not only a message for David's enemies, it is a message, it is a psalm of prophetic urgency. The Most High God who judges and defeats David's enemies is the same Most High God who defeated David's son's enemies. And he is the Most High God who will render the evil, wickedness, and rebellion of all of the nations guilty in final judgment. Prophetic urgency. A day of judgment is coming. You can count on it. It's as sure as if it's already happened. In verses 7 and 8, he talks about the establishment of his throne through this judgment. And David writes, But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. And he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. In these verses, David reaffirms God's sovereignty. And you'll notice he begins verse 7 with a contrast with the word but. It contrasts the eternal judgment, defeat, and punishment of the enemies of verses 3 through 6 with the eternal throne and judgment of God's righteousness in verses 7 through 8. In these verses, David is looking ahead to the time when God will bring final judgment and establish his righteous kingdom forever. And David is teaching us that there is coming a day when God will judge the world with righteousness. And he will judge the peoples of the world with uprightness. And on that day, perfect justice will be handed down to those who are found guilty. The Apostle Paul referred to Psalm 9 verse 8 in his sermon in Athens when he was preaching to the philosophers on Mars Hill. And he attributed Psalm 9 and verse 8 to a prophecy about Jesus Christ. And this is what he said in Acts chapter 17, verses 30 to 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Did you hear that, friends? God has fixed a day. It is certain. It is settled. God is not wondering when this world is going to come to an end. He set a day for when this world is going to come to an end. And he has guaranteed it. Listen, here's how you know it is certain and it is a guarantee. He raised his son from the dead. And I challenge you this morning to go find a grave with Jesus' body in it. You won't find it. He's in heaven, and he's awaiting for his father to look at him and say, go. It's that certain, because Jesus rose from the grave, it is a guarantee that he is coming back in final, victorious, triumphant judgment. That's why Jesus said of himself in John chapter 5 and verse 22, for the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. 
Jesus Christ is going to judge every nation of this world. And Jesus Christ is going to judge every person in this world. That's why Paul said to the philosophers at Mars Hill, repent before the judgment comes. And that's why I'm saying to you this morning out of a heart of love, because I care for you, that you need to repent of your sins and you need to turn to Jesus Christ and you need to trust in him for your salvation. If you face Jesus without repenting of your sins and trusting in him to save you, you will be found guilty and you will be sent into everlasting eternal punishment. Now, you may not want to hear that this morning. You may even say, you're old-fashioned, Pastor. Some of that's probably true. But everything that I've just said to you is true, not because I've said it, but because God said it. And God's word is true. God's word will last for all eternity. And so you can count on what I have said to you as being true. And friends, the reason why you need Jesus is because you were born in sin and your sin separates you from God. Your sin has marred every area of your life. You may say, no, I'm really striving to be a good person. You may be striving to be a good person, but even in your striving, you mess up and you sin and you fall backwards. And the reason why you do that is because you're totally depraved. You're totally consumed by sin, whether you realize it or not. It affects every part of your life. And you were born that way. And you've lived that way. And you'll continue to live that way. Until you recognize your sin and how it separates you from the God who created you. And you turn from your sin in repentance and you go in the opposite direction. And you trust in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Because while you couldn't live a perfect life, Jesus Christ lived a perfect life for you in your place. And he didn't just live a perfect life for you. He died for you. You deserve to die because of your sin. But because God loved you so much, he sent his son to die in your place. And so when Jesus hung on the cross for your sins, you should have been hanging on the cross for your sins. And God has demonstrated to you how much he loves you by sending his son to die for you. And God has proven that sin has been defeated because when Jesus was put in a tomb, three days later, he rose from the grave and he ascended to heaven, victorious, defeating sin, death, hell, and the grave. And this room is filled with people who were sinners who've now become saints. Not because they're good. Not because they're good, because there's not one of us that's good. It's because Jesus is good. And because Jesus took care of their sin. And the same Jesus who took care of their sin can take care of your sin. And listen to me, friends. There's coming a day when it's going to be too late. There's coming a day when the last sermon will ever be preached from this pulpit. And it'll be too late. It'll be too late. So if you recognize your need for Jesus today, if you hear the sound of his voice telling you to come to him today, if you feel the Holy Spirit of God dragging you to Jesus, overcoming your resistance, turn from your sin and trust in Jesus today. And friends, for those of us who know Christ as our Savior, this, this day when Jesus returns, this day that God has fixed 
It is a reason to rejoice. Listen to Psalm 96, verses 10 to 13. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice and let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult in everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth and he will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Oh, don't you just love that? Can't you see the picture of it that the psalmist is describing for you? In Romans chapter 8, Paul says that the world is groaning now under its sin. But when creation sees Jesus coming, it's going to sing and rejoice with joy. And we're going to join them. It's a reason to rejoice. And so David, in verses 3 through 8, has his hope fulfilled in Christ because he knows that God is displaying his glory in the world by judging the world through his son. And when we read about the majesty and glory and power of the judgment of God in these verses, we're reading about the rule and reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you can either meet the Lord Jesus as your Savior now and receive his mercy and grace, or you can meet him later as your judge where there will be no mercy and grace. But one way or another, every single one of us has a date with Jesus, and we're going to see him face to face. And so my simple question for you this morning is, are you ready to meet him? Well, David not only praises God for his wonderful works and his righteous judgment in verses 9 through 12, he praises him because God is a refuge for his people. Look at these verses. They're so helpful and encouraging. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. In verse 9, David reminds himself and us that the Lord is a stronghold. It refers to a high place on top of a mountain that is safe from the enemy because it provides strong security and sure defenses. And notice what David says in verse 9. He says, the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed. He's a stronghold in times of trouble. That phrase, times of trouble, literally means times of extremity. It, it describes the cutting off of the hope of deliverance. And it conveys distress that ultimately ends in despair. Now, don't miss what David is saying. He's saying that God is a place of safety God is a place of security. God is a sure defense for those who are oppressed, for those who are marginalized, for those who are outcast, for those who've lost all hope, for those who find themselves in complete and utter despair. And then in verse 10, David reminds himself and us that when we're in trouble, we run to the Lord as our stronghold because when we run to him, in times of trouble and despair, we'll never be disappointed. Why? Look at what he says in verse 10. God will never forsake those who seek him. 
God will never turn away those who seek and run after him. And notice what David is saying here, friends. Don't miss it. He's saying that if you belong to Jesus, you will trust in him and in his character in the midst of your trouble. Why? Because he's your stronghold. Listen to how Psalm 146 verses 5 through 9 describe the stronghold of the Lord. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the, the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. He's a stronghold in every time of trouble. And then I love what David does in verses 11 and 12. Do you see it? He invites everyone who is reading this psalm. Everyone who is hearing this psalm and everyone who knows the name of the Lord, the stronghold of God, he invites all of them to join him in singing praises to the Lord Most High. And according to David, God's salvation is going to be proclaimed from Zion, from the city of God. And look at what he says in verses 11 and 12. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. David points us in this singing to the God who avenges blood. This name for God echoes all the way back to the first book of our Bible, the book of Genesis and the covenant that God made with Noah and his descendants and of all humanity. God says to Noah in Genesis chapter 9 that he will require a reckoning for the life of man because God has made man in his own image. And what David is teaching us is the same thing that Genesis 9 teaches us, that every human life is precious to God because every human life is made in the image of God. And because of that, God is mindful of every human being, especially of those who are afflicted and oppressed in times of trouble. And David says, sing praises to this God. Rejoice in Him. Worship Him because in your affliction, He is your avenger. In your oppression... He is your avenger. In your injustice, He is your avenger. He is mindful of you. He knows every single thing that is going on in your life. And so these commands to sing praise to God is really, listen friends, it's really a command for us to open our eyes to see God for who He is and for what He has done and worship Him. And the only reason someone would not praise God is because you're blind to who He is and to what He's done. And when you encounter the Psalms, if you haven't seen it already in the first nine Psalms, the Psalms are constantly lifting our eyes 
to see God for who He is. They are constantly filling out our picture of God. They are constantly exalting and lifting up another aspect and character of God or another display of God's mighty works. And when we see Him, we see He is so thrilling and glorious that the only proper response to Him is praise and worship and thanksgiving. And when you see God in this light through the windows of the Psalms, you have to sing. You have to praise. You have to worship. You have to exalt. Or you don't know the God of the Bible. Because the Psalms is the worship book of the Bible. The Psalms is the worship book of the Christian. And every time we read and hear and engage in the Psalms, the Psalms are calling us to lift our eyes up away from ourselves and away from all the things that are going on around us and lift them higher up to the heavens and see God for who He is and remember Him for what He has done and worship Him and give thanks to Him. And the only reason why you wouldn't do that is because you can't see Him and you don't know Him. So David, he not only praises God for his wonderful works, his righteous judgment, because he's a refuge for his people, finally, he praises God in verses 13 to 20 for answered prayer. Now there's a shift that takes place in this psalm in verse 13. David turns to his present need. He directly addresses God and he passionately cries out to him for help. Look at how he begins in verse 13. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me, O you who lift me up from the gates of death. David found himself surrounded by his enemies standing at the doorstep of death, and he desperately, desperately needed God to rescue him. And in verse 14, David reveals the reason behind his passionate plea. That I may recount all of your praises and rejoice in your salvation. David is praying for God to rescue him and deliver him so David could worship him and praise him more. It's as if he's saying, God, if you'll just hear my prayer and come through and rescue me and answer me now, you'll give me yet another reason to sing praises to you and yet another reason to worship you and yet another reason to give thanks to your name. And then notice what happens in verses 15 to 18. David describes the end of the wicked. And you'll notice in these verses that these future events are described in the past tense again as if they've already happened and they've already taken place. In verse 15, David uses the image of a hunter digging a hole and hiding a net to catch an animal as illustrations for how the wicked become trapped in their own evil schemes. Do you see it? The nations have sunk in the pit that they have made, in the net that they hid. Their own foot has been caught. And what David is teaching is that what the wicked have planned for others becomes their own experience and their own destiny. That everything, listen, that everything the wicked plot and do is against their own interests and is at the expense of the harm of their own soul. It all comes back on them. And then in verse 16, David declares that God makes himself known and he executes his just 
justice and judgment through the wicked becoming ensnared in the work of their own hands. He says, the Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. It's a reminder to all of us this morning that even the best plans and efforts of those who oppose God always end up serving God's own purposes. I'll give you one quick illustration in passing. Go to the book of Esther. Remember Haman who built the gallows and he ended up being hung on them himself. God always uses the plans of the wicked to fulfill his own purposes. Now notice what happens in the text at the end of verse 16. There's this weird word, Higeon. I'm not even sure I said it right. I practiced. I tried. It's a difficult word to interpret. The best consensus I could find in studying it was meditate on this. Mark it well. Mark what well? How God makes himself known. How God makes his power known. How God makes his name known. In taking the plans and the purposes of the wicked and turning them back on themselves and using them for his own glory and the fulfillment of his own plans. Dwell long on that. And just in case you missed it, look at what happens in the text again at the end of verse 16. Selah. Double meditation. Double meditation. Think twice as long about what is being taught here. Then in verses 17 and 18, David contrasts the fate of the wicked with the remembrance and the hope of the poor. The wicked and all who forget God will return to the grave without him, while God promises to remember the needy and the poor, and he'll never let them perish. In the midst of political turmoil, in the midst of social unrest, in the midst of economic uncertainty, it's easy, friends, for us to be discouraged. Add on top of that, all of our own personal problems, all of our own struggles, all of our own failures. Add on top of that, the list of injustices and oppression and attacks on the most vulnerable of society. And none of us are immune to growing anxious or losing heart or becoming discouraged or defeated or fall into despair. That's why you need this psalm. That's why you need these words from David. A day of reckoning is coming. Divine justice is on the way. The Lord is going to make everything right. And the future judgment of the wicked and the nations is a signed sealed and settled reality that's why in verses 19 to 20 david concludes his prayer by calling on god to rise up and execute his judgment he prays in verse 19 that man would not prevail he prays in verse 19 that the wicked would be judged in god's presence he prays in verse 20 that the fear of the lord would be deposited into the wicked that they would fear god and in verse 20, he prays that the wicked would know that they are men. What does he mean by that? Well, the word men that he uses there, it emphasizes man's frailty. 
And here's what David is saying. That the wicked and the nations, they would know on that day of judgment that they're frail. They're defenseless. They're unable to stand up to almighty God. Do you know what David is really praying in verses 13 to 20? Your kingdom come, God. Your kingdom come now. Let these wicked men and the nations know once and for all and now for and forever that the Lord Most High God reigns. He is the sovereign God over the universe and humans are not. That's what he's praying. And I'll remind you this morning that the power that is seated in Charleston, West Virginia, that the power that is seated in the city council of Wheeling, that the power that is seated in St. Clairsville, Ohio, that the power that's seated in Beijing and Moscow and London and Tehran and in Washington, D.C. is nothing but frail, defenseless flesh that is unable to stand up against the Lord God most high. So why, why would you be afraid? David composed Psalm 9 to praise God for his wonderful deeds and his just judgment. This psalm has a prophetic ring to it as God the righteous judge justly judges the nations. And no matter how much evil may reign in the world, a final day of judgment is coming. And Psalm 9 is the announcement of that fact. David, in this psalm, has lifted our eyes from ourselves and from the things around us and the problems and pains of this life. And he's lifted them up to the heavens and specifically to the Lord Jesus Christ, reminding us of the day of judgment and the unending joy that awaits all believers. So, friends, so, sing on. Sing on. Sing with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Look up to the heavens. Your redemption is near. And preach. Preach like you've never preached before. Because there's a day when all that is going to be over. And the righteous one will come and rule and reign. So sing and preach and sing and preach and sing and preach until that day. Let's pray.